That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Jake, here we are, episode 254 of Same Old Song, which means I have to give a shout out to Waco, Texas, my home for the past 10 years. That is our area code down here. Oh, that's cool. In the 254. Well, I am already projecting myself into the future and getting ready to enjoy a wonderful hot dog as we prepare to celebrate America. <laughs> yeah, that's so. right. So we are looking at this. Uh, um, this will drop on Monday, July 3rd, which means that uh, if you're listening to it, you still have time for a run out to the supermarket to get one of those huge sleeves of ground beef. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like the tube that you cut out, you know, uh, you, you may be able to go get some, get some of your favorite uh, adult or whatever beverages of your choice to celebrate the fact that, uh, you know, there were some people I mean, a long time ago that decided not to follow the rules anymore. Yeah, man. Uh, so what's your, uh, what's your uh, favorite uh, 4th of July kind of uh, food? Man, I love a good burger. Just a grilled burger is pretty, pretty nice. Mm-hmm. It's a, it is mm-hmm. one of America's, I think, nice contributions to the world. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have a thing? I mean, that is like the one day as a grown man that I give myself to eat several hot dogs. And, uh, I mean, we got the Nathans here in New York, and I, I love a good hot dog. And so I give myself... Um, well, I enjoy my forgiveness, yeah. and uh, I put I put it down, and so um, I'm looking forward to uh, several hot dogs, uh, maybe with some coleslaw on it and some other things. But yeah, so my father-in-law uh, I, calls those tube steaks. Yeah, well, he's right, and um, I uh, <laughs> tube steaks between a bun, and uh, I love it, and uh, I think uh, you know nothing says you know celebrating America. When I was a kid, my favorite thing was. We would go to uh, the Yuma County Fairgrounds where they would have the Crash and Derby, so which was a giant, you know, uh, car cr- derby where they would crash into each other, mm. and then you'd watch the Fourth of July. So it was like height of mullets and tank tops and uh, a lot of country music and uh, man, a lot of blue-blooded Americans. That's so uh, interesting. How did our country? What? become to associate like crashing cars into each other with like it's i don't know it's there's something like if i have to explain it to you Aaron, you'll never understand clearly i will not um and (laughs) and uh by the way listeners let us know is the hot dog a sandwich that is a debate that scholars Mm. have not yet settled on a conclusion so we'll see if you can tell us but enough with this blather let's get down to it this is for sunday july 9th this is the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, and um, we'll be looking at track two as we have decided to do for the summer. Again, yep. not not some of you may be 
rocking through Genesis basically chronologically. We're not doing that. We're looking at these more thematic readings from the Old Testament. So we begin with Zechariah 9, verse 9 to 12, and then we have Romans 7, 15 through 25a, and then Matthew 11, uh, two little uh, chunks here, verse 16 through verse 19, and verses 25 through 30, where the supporters of John the Baptist get some interesting news. So uh, let's dive in here. We begin with this reading from Zechariah, just to set the scene here. This written by the prophet Zechariah about 500 years before Jesus, and he is writing in Jerusalem. It's The exile is over. The people of Israel have come back to what would have then been the province of Judah under the Persian Empire, and they are folks who have fallen far from their previous heights. Uh, and um, it's sort of like being kicked out of your house for failure to abide by the homeowners association code. And then they let you move back into the neighborhood, but you're like in a little junky old trailer right next to the dumpster or whatever. So like they're back in Jerusalem, but the temple has not been rebuilt. They are not powerful in the world stage at all. They have to pay all these taxes to Persia to fund all their wars and all this sort of stuff. So it's just a rough time for the people of Israel. And then the prophet Zechariah comes on and says, hey, I know it's bad, but it's going to turn around. Um, and he, in this verse, which people kind of know because it's read on Palm Sunday, because it's got this idea of a king coming back and riding on a, on a donkey. Uh, but for the people who heard this in Zechariah's time, this would have been, they wouldn't, they don't know anything about Palm Sunday. This is a prophecy about an actual king, a king in Israel, they would have understood this coming back to reign and to sort of restore Israel. But what's interesting, and I'll stop in a second here, Jake, and let you correct any errors I've made. But um, the uh, thing that's interesting is he doesn't say this king is going to come in like a mullet sporting um, Van Halen t-shirt wearing America loving car crashing Yuma Arizona sort of kick butt sort of figure you know that that brash militaristic heck yeah kind of guy none of that at all he says he's going to come in not riding an, an Abrams tank not riding a big Humvee with a machine gun mounted on the top he's going to come in on a donkey, this um, smaller, humble animal. And he, it says he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. That means he's going to disarm. These are these are weapons of war and um, the battle bow and all that sort of stuff. He's going to, Ephraim and Jerusalem, that's his own team. Those are that's the people of Israel. So he's going to basically come in on a, he's going to come driving a smart car, you know, those little tiny things, not a big tank. And when he gets into town, he's going to defund the military apparatus and he's going to command peace to the nations. And yet, weirdly, even though he comes with this sort of weak and humble attitude, his dominion shall be from sea to sea. Uh, meaning the, in, in sort of um, ancient times, basically the entire known earth, the river that Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Uh, so I don't know. So I have ideas about how I'd preach that, but that kind of gives you the context and what's going on. Jake, what would you say and how would you preach this? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I would tie in all of that uh, information that you just mentioned about how this uh, God promises them a king. So they have come back 
and uh, from exile, and it is a real, real disappointment. You know, it's uh, it's the neighborhood isn't the way it used to be, and you're right. And so God promises them a king who will come, and uh, won't just come, but will indeed cut off these instruments of war and uh, bring about peace. Command, not just bring about peace, but command peace to the nations. And uh, his dominion is going to be basically everywhere you can see. Um, and uh, so from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, but now how is that all possible? How is that all possible? Well, because they're looking at this and they're like, are you kidding me? And it's because of the line that follows it. Um, as for you also, as for you also, because of the, of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And so the point here is that this is all possible because while they have never been faithful, a God, Yahweh, has always been faithful. And he's been faithful, uh, not the way that they wanted, but the way he's promised through these established covenants that began with Abram all the way in the, in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And Yahweh, their God, has constantly been renewing this covenant uh, you know, with Joshua and uh, Jehoiada and Hezekiah and all of these different kings. And so, but these covenants uh, they uh, between Yahweh and Israel were routinely ratified by a blood sacrifice. By a blood, it wasn't just like, hey, you're okay, let's spit in our hands and handshake. Mm. No, we're talking about a real religion, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> one that requires blood. Get your crystals and out so of here. The, yeah, exactly. And so the covenant between Yahweh and Israel, it was many faceted. Is like it had lots of facets, but it was always connected with blood and about um, being a blessing to the nation. And so when he says, I've set you free, your prisoners free from the pit in which there is no water, well, this speaks to the hopelessness that these people have felt. Like a pit with there's no water in a world of deserts is a terrible, terrible thing. Mm. And so he's just like, uh, so he's so how is this possible? Well, this king that's going to ride in on a donkey, are you kidding? Well, he is going to be Yahweh himself, and he is going to ratify once again this covenant with you, but it's not going to be a covenant like the one that was established between you and Moses where you did your part and God did his. No, sir, this will be a new covenant, uh, the kind of covenant that has the power to change your heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and not only uh, bring about and give you hope, but create peace by the shedding of his blood, not only between Jew and Gentile, but between humanity and God himself. Yeah, I think I also want to encourage preachers out there to know that when you preach on this passage, do the history and the, the sort of context as you can so people know what it's talking about. But also, again, Scripture is always trying to show us how God works in the world. So say this is what this was about, and this is about how God works in the world, but make sure you connect it to people's lives. So I'm just thinking about knowing that this was when Persia was in charge and it was, you know, 500 years before Jesus. Like, that's great, but it's not helpful unless people... Uh, connect it to God working in our lives today, very personally. And so I'm thinking about how, like this shows a group of people who were in a really bad way. They suffered a major reversal, which everybody in your pews has experienced that in some way. And, and things have not ended up well. And so how does restoration 
come? What does it look like when it comes? And what this passage shows, the prophecy, and of course we see it fulfilled in Jesus, but this is how God works everywhere because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we see the way God works in our lives is that we experience a reversal and the the restoration, the redemption, the salvation often looks like um, uh, our lives, God coming to our lives in places we didn't expect and not with strength and power, but with weakness and humility. So this, this looks like you have a child that you've been trying to change for her whole life. And at some point you say, I can't do it. And you give up. And then isn't it the funniest thing that God begins to work? Or oh, your marriage is uh, kind of reached some sort of impasse and then you find yourself divorced. You're like, oh my gosh, I've failed. I was, you know, heard somebody talking about this sort of recently. And and that was the, then when when you realize you don't have it all together, you're no longer in a position of strength. God comes to you on a donkey. He himself meets you in that weakness. And then he does not invite you into some sort of powerful, victorious overachieving. He says that you cut off the chariot, you get off the war horse, you stop the battle bow. You, you, God works in this weakness, in this place of, of humility, and this is where you find God. And so this just, I'm trying, because again, I'm trying to always think about how to connect this to actual life. There's a giving up and there's an embracing of weakness. And we're going to see this again. You already talked about, I'll kind of give it away, but we get to Romans pretty soon here. And we, we see what, what you call Jake, the AA approach to spirituality, to life, um, and it's, again, this coming into a position of weakness because we realize that when we rely on our own strength, it doesn't work. Um, in the Zechariah passage, it's not world domination through strength. It's it's weakness and it's humility, and that's where God seems to work in the world. And I think the, the great thing about this passage, I mean, if you want to speak about where it at, it's at in people's lives. I mean, oftentimes we are at our most hopeless when things seem desolate. Mm. And uh, when there doesn't seem to be um, uh, an exit, all the windows and all the doors seemed closed and locked. You know, I mean, maybe for you, it's some sort of financial situation that you got into. Maybe for you, it is that relationship. You know, you got blindsided and uh, you had no idea that this was going to come. And now, you know, you once had a family and now you don't have a family. And, you know, whatever it, it, it is, like oftentimes we are... At our most, where are you, God? And it's um, actually, it's in those places that you, this is why our king comes in on a donkey, mm. uh, so that you'll actually look at the places you don't want to look at in your life, you know, because that's where he's at work. And uh, and uh, and I love what it says because he's at work and oftentimes in ways we'd never expect it. But this is why uh, the prophet can declare to his people, return to your stronghold, not just prisoners. I mean, we're all prisoners of something, but as Christians, we're prisoners of hope. And why is that? Because the prophet says from God, today I declare that I will restore to you double. Mm. And uh, the, um, the idea there comes from the Jewish law that requires a thief to pay his victim double for whatever's been stolen. And, uh, and it also required a parent to give uh, the firstborn son a double portion of the inheritance. And, uh, and Jesus, uh, the firstborn of all creation, um, well, man, he, had, he has been given all that was promised to him because he was the faithful Israel and the one who went all the way to the end for us. And because of his faithfulness, uh, we too, in the midst of our desolation, in the midst of those difficult situations where you're like, what am I going to do? Uh, we have the, the hope that God has not only returned to us, not only a double portion, but an eternal portion of all of his grace, mercy, and love, transferring us from the kingdom 
kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, where we're no longer slaves but baptized children of God. Well, since you're already quoting from the Pauline epistles, let us turn now to Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25a. And you know, listeners, that we've been going through the book of Romans. The lectioner has been leading us through that. We'll continue to be going through the book of Romans all the way through the summer. It's not until late September that I think we begin to get into Philippians. But uh, so if you, if you, I think in three years I'm not going to go on vacation. I'm just going to stay and do one long old Roman series on Romans. Man, yeah. I would, I'd affirm that, and then you can take January off or something. Yeah, uh, that's right. Christmas. Yeah, take, take off Advent. Uh, so, by this passage is great, and Paul has been answering this question through um, in the last several chapters about how do we understand the Christian life. If Jesus really lets us off the hook, if all our sins are forgiven, and there's nothing for us to add to that in terms of our performance and our righteousness, uh, are you saying we can just do whatever we want? So Paul is addressing that charge, and he talked in our last uh, week uh, in Romans 6 about uh, um, not being a slave to sin, but being a slave to righteousness, and um, and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ is uh, eternal life. Um, and so he's saying it's not a, it's, it, if you're thinking about um, Christianity as some sort of behavioral system, that's not it at all. Uh, it, there's something inside that must be done um, by the work of God to transform you into someone whose life looks like that of uh, a, a follower of God, as opposed to you working really hard and white knuckling your way into it. And he's trying to find words to explain this because this is a new, this is a sort of a new understanding, especially for Paul, who was raised as a Pharisee and it was absolutely about obedience to the law. Um, but now Jesus has come and upset his apple cart and he's trying to write this theological treatise to explain this. And in Romans 7, we see this key insight. Um, Hannah Arendt, I think, is the one who said St. Paul discovered the, the subconscious. You know, we think it was Freud, but really it was St. Paul. And if you read Freud, actually, he, he acknowledges uh, Paul's insight here, that there's something inside the human being that um, wants what it wants and doesn't, uh, and actually attempts to control it, um, don't work, and, and actually backfire and strengthen the, the resistance to the good. And so, so Paul is saying the reason we can't have a system of Christianity or any religion that just says, work hard to be good, um, and just sort of lectures you into holiness. The reason that doesn't work is because Paul has discovered there's something inside his flesh and his very self and his body that goes against even his own best interest. So that so any sort of lecture approach to holiness is going to fail. And so Paul is describing this here. So this is the, I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. I promised myself I would not eat the whole sleeve of Pringles. But there I am with the crumbs covering my lap and all over my face and uh, the tube is empty. So I do the very thing I hate. Um, and so he's, he just, he, this is this amazing passage where Paul describes the human condition. And to our listeners, who, to any nerds out there who are into the new perspective on Paul and have read Dunn and Wright and other people on this, I realize that there's this big debate around this passage and who Paul is talking about. But let us just acknowledge that whatever your theological perspective on this passage, Every human being on the planet can relate to what Paul describes here. 
that the thing you don't want to do, you keep doing. The thing that you know is good, that you actually want to do. You'd like to get to bed and get eight hours of sleep and wake up and do your yoga and your quiet time. But you yeah. don't do it. And that so there's this thing inside you. And if there's going to be holiness, if there's going to be sanctification, it's going to have to be an inside job that you can't get done on your own. And I respect all of those guys, and I think it's wonderful. But I, I think it misses the pastoral, the pastoral uh, issue. And Paul, yeah, Saint exactly. Paul is a pastor to say that this is like some sort of metaphor for old Israel or something like that. That all of a sudden he's like talking in one tense, and then he switches into metaphor. It's ridiculous. Because if your parish uh, is listening to you uh, to the reader as this verse is read, they're going to be like, "This verse is about me." And don't take that away from your congregation and say, "Well, and well, then. not only that, but can you imagine yourself and you're talking about yourself, and then all of a sudden you switch in oh but i meant that as a metaphor for um uh old calvary saint george's (laughs) you know it's like it doesn't make sense paul uses the present tense and this is why i call it the aa approach to christianity it's present paul is describing his life as 100 percent a converted christian and it's the AA approach to, to Christianity because he begins with I instead of you. Oftentimes, pietism wants to point out the you in the situation, like you did this, you need to pick it up. I mean, when I'm thinking about, I mean, you know, when I'm thinking about, I, I always immediately, I don't go to, I've done the same thing. I go to, you're the only one who's ever done that. You know, I am flesh sold under sin, wretched man that I am. And that begins to leave you thinking, well, if that's how it is with the Apostle Paul, then maybe it can be, how can it be any less true for me? You know, and it allows me, that actually becomes comforting. And uh, it allows me to realize that this is the description of every Christian in the world. I sent you a meme earlier this week, Aaron, and it just, when you were talking, it reminded me, and it has like that little pudgy, like cabbage patch kid looking thing kid on it and the meme says when you've been eating all day and you're not sure if you're disgusted with yourself yeah. or you want to finish strong with something sweet <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> yeah this is this is the case and this is this is the conflict that's going on in Paul and it's the same conflict going on in each and every one of us you know the spirit our inner being the new person you can't see it but man there are moments that you delight in the law of god to quote the psalmist But that's our new reality that's at war with the old. The spirit that's in you now longs for the 2.0 redeemed by Christ. However, that side is hidden. And often what we can see is only the U 1.0. But isn't it comforting to know that St. Paul only saw the him 1.0? So you want to do one thing and you wind up doing the very thing you didn't want. Your reflexes are off. I mean, you and I are always talking about this, like our, you know, our diets and stuff. And you slip up and life can be downright wretched at times. But that's when we look at ourselves in light of the law, and that's all we can say, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm a mess, and who's going to rescue me from this body of death? So I have to go to the best part of Romans 7, which is Romans 8, 1, and that is, thanks be to God and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, uh, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you are the 2.0, and uh, that uh, brings a little bit of ease in the midst of the big conflict going in between the person I want to be versus the person I actually am. Right. I, I think uh, the, the thing that you can do here is you can point out to folks that if, if they are trying to fix themselves by their flesh, they will mm. not be able to do it. Because as Paul says, I know nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. That's kind of what you hear in Psalm 51. There is no health in me, which used to be in the old confession in the prayer book. Um, you can find it in the Ash Wednesday liturgy now. But um, it's just a recognition that if... if um, 
human life is sort of like trying to drive up a hill. Um, Paul is saying that your 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 car is broken, and you're not going to get at that hill by just yelling at the car or pushing it or dragging it or whatever. There's there's going to have to have to be someone who could come and fix it, and that's why he says, "Who will rescue me from this body of death?" Um, there's a there's a lot. Um, here. And I think the gift of this passage is it will help your congregation to feel seen and understood because most people think that the key to fixing ourselves lies within. You know, you can be anything you want. You just try harder and um, do these life hacks or whatever. And what this says is that the key lies from someone outside of you, Jesus Christ our Lord, who will rescue you from this body of death. The solution is not inside. It, it is someone outside you who needs to do that work in you, but you can't do it yourself. So, so it's, it's a kind of passage that name it diagnoses the problem of the human condition more clearly than almost anything else, and then uh, uh, directs us to the gospel. So, uh, and speaking of the gospel, we'll turn to the gospel passage for today, uh, Matthew 11, 16 through 19, 25 through 30. And it is important, I think, if you preach on this passage, to note what has happened right before the beginning of Matthew 11. So, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer, is in prison because of some um, politically unwise things he was saying about Herod uh, and his romantic life. And so John the Baptizer is in prison, and he was the one that was the hype man for Jesus, announcing, get ready, because he's coming, and it's going to be great, but he's going to lock up all the sinners and help all the saints. And, and then he hears these reports while he's in prison of Jesus not locking up sinners, but going bowling with them and uh, going to their um, Cinco de Mayo parties and um, not standing on the corner um, of that party looking judgmentally with his arms crossed, but he is, you know, holding a Bud Light apparently and uh, maybe maybe doing the Macarena occasionally at these parties. He's like getting into it. And so John is super offended that Jesus is doing this. He's supposed to kick the sinners in the teeth, not go to their parties. And so John the baptizer sends by his messengers uh, to Jesus, are you the one who's supposed to come? Even though you're the Messiah and I'm your cousin and I announced your, your arrival and I baptize you and I heard God say from heaven, this is, this is God's son, I'm, now I'm doubting. Because why? Because you're hanging out with sinners, which is the last thing a real religious person would ever do. And so Jesus responds and says, look, John was to, to the followers, John was great. He's the greatest person ever under the old religious system, but I'm doing, Papa's got a brand new bag. I'm here doing a new thing. And he has, he begins with this sentence like, look, um, this generation is like a child sitting in the marketplace. And he quotes this little children's song. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. Basically when we were when we played the, there's this song apparently would have been known in Jesus's day, kids songs, like a nursery rhyme kind of, um, about somebody who basically wouldn't be happy with anything. So when we played the flute, you didn't dance. When we sang the sad song, you didn't mourn. So nothing we could do would, would make it right. And he says basically to the people around him, you're kind of like this. When John the Baptist came, he was really serious. He didn't, he didn't do the Macarena and he didn't go to the parties, and he was like, everybody be on your best Sunday school behavior. And you said, he has a demon. And so now I come, and I'm hanging out with sinners and having a good time and, and not like John the Baptizer at all. And you're saying, ah, oh, he can't be religious and right because he's a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, and so he's saying, you don't want to hear anything. You're not open to anything we're saying. 
we've done the good cop, we've done the bad cop, you're not hearing anything, but he's saying, listen, um, to, to see who Jesus is, to be open to the perspective that he's giving, um, it's it has to be revealed to you by God. God has to do this work in you. And this kind of echoes the Romans 7, like who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from my own mind sometimes? Um, and he says, this is something that has to be revealed to you. It says the, the no one knows the father except the son, anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So there has to be this work on you from the outside um, to help you see that God has come this way. So I'll, I'll stop there, Jake, and I'll hand the baton to you. Yeah. So, um, well, I think, you know, I think this particular, this particular passage is really beautiful. And, uh, I was, uh, reflecting on, uh, uh, what, um, this, uh, theologian I've been reading named, uh, Frederick Bruner on Matthew, because I did a Bible study on Matthew. He says about chapter 11, he says, this is, uh, you are knee deep into Christ country here in this particular mm. chapter, because this, uh, particular passage answers for everybody who is Jesus so who is Jesus and uh, this is a big question it was a big question in Jesus's day and it's a big question in all of our day as well and so um, the text so you're absolutely right it begins with John uh, the Baptist and Jesus talking about John the Baptist and uh, in uh, in in rabbinic Judaism at the time there was a teaching and I've talked a lot about this um, but how um, how uh, uh, the prophet Elijah was always to come before the Messiah. And if you remember, John the Baptist is this Elijah figure. So in both Matthew and Luke's gospel, he's always appearing before pivots in that particular gospel. So when he's teaching right here about who John the Baptist is, um, he is teaching us who he is and that he is uh, uh, the Messiah and, uh, and uh, he is the Messiah for the whole world. And so that's what it is. And then so then as the Messiah for the whole world now, unfortunately, the lectionary cut out uh, verses 20 to 24. Well, here's what he does as the Messiah. Two things. Uh, one is what John the Baptist thought. He only had half the sandwich, if you will. Um, and that is uh, Jesus uh, de delivers judgment. And uh, he, uh, he delivers a series of cities. Uh, judgment upon those cities and uh, for not recognizing him and he's like it would like it was like Sodom and Gomorrah would have rejoiced to see my day is essentially what he says and so he curses them but then so this is the Messiah as the judge because the Messiah is the judge but then you come to the spot and really if you're going to ever understand the gospel you have to really understand the high pitch of the law so this is why it's important to tie when you're preaching this text to tie in 20 and 24 in there because you see Jesus as judge, but it's not judge only. He is the judge who is judged for our sake. And so finally, when we begin to see this, I thank you, Father, you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, etc., etc. And then he goes into that great comfortable word, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Uh, this is where you see him in his most uh, wonderful and glorious office. And that as, is as your Savior. Jesus is our Savior. And uh, God's will to you, you begin to see, is in the judge, is not just simply uh, judgment. But God's will to you in Jesus is gracious. A yoke was something you put on beasts of burden to do lots of things, namely plow fields. 
actually, this is a reference, the stoles that we wear on Sunday, you know, those liturgical beautiful scarves, those are uh, reflective of this verse because those stoles, which represent yokes, they're easy and light. See, Jesus saw a religion uh, climb the ladder to God, be good for goodness sake religion, as a heavy burden. And this is how most people see Christianity today. But we see Jesus is articulating something different. Uh, Christianity should not be a heavy lift. It shouldn't be a heavy burden. Rather, it should be light and easy because his yoke is easy and light because he's taken on the sins of the world upon himself. And he is the Savior for all people in need. If you think you got it, if you're still on the ladder, we just took my kids to Coney Island and there's this thing where you can climb this funky ladder and if you can ring the bell, you get a big teddy bear. But the ladder is impossible to climb. But if you're still like that 14-year-old boy still hanging in the center, his legs and arms shaking because he's trying to hang on with all of his might to get a $2 bear, go for it. But if you've fallen off (laughs) the ladder and you've uh, spent uh, $75 trying to get a stuffed animal, well, now you're ready to see Jesus in his wonderful, complete office in the Messiah, and that is is your beautiful Savior. And, uh, well, uh, he's fallen off the ladder as well, but he owns the entire amusement park, (laughs) and it's all yours as well. So (laughs) there it is. So enjoy the lion and enjoy a root beer float. There you go. Well, and I think all these passages tie together beautifully because in the Zechariah passage we see uh, this divine king coming humbly to help mm. people. Um, in the Romans passage, we see the reason for our own humility, this sin that mm. dwells within us that we we can't fix ourselves in our own strength. And then we see that humble king in Matthew 11 telling us to come to him if you are uh, weary and burdened um, because he is that one riding on a donkey. He is the one that comes to be judged in our place. He is the one that um, spills his blood for us. And so we can come to him with our weakness and our failures and our sufferings and all that and be restored and find him to be our our salvation and our hope. Mm. So that ends us Amen. for the, uh, the sixth Sunday after Pentecost. And uh, we'll see you guys again next week as we continue through um, these readings. God bless. Somebody's looking, somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know, we crucified him, buried him, but three days later, well, the stone got rolled away. And yes, Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production, and remember to keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.